From the time Agnes was small, in fact, as long as she could remember, she had believed in and, and loved God, even as a little girl. Even after, actually, the death of her father at a very young age, her love for God continued. And when she was in middle school, she took a trip, a missions trip, went across the world to serve for a short period of time, and her faith expanded and exploded. And she got a glimpse of how big God is and what he was doing around the world and came back home and promptly declared to her widowed mother, I want to go into full-time ministry, and I think I'm going to be a missionary. And her mother wasn't too terribly thrilled about that idea, but her mother had a deep faith as well and encouraged the journey. And so when Agnes turned 18, she left home and went to get proper training for ministry, went away for schooling and preparation and spent about five years or so doing that. And again, the anticipation and excitement of dedicating her life to serving God was growing and growing and growing. Her faith was so alive. And the first couple years on the mission field were challenging, uh, but thrilling at the same time. Seeing things she'd never seen before. Seeing God do things through her that she never even imagined. And in fact, what she began to notice is that through each year, her faith was growing uh, exponentially. And that happened for about the first five years or so that she was out in the mission field serving God. Her faith grew. Her love for God grew. But then over time, uh, she began to notice that as the organization that she was working with uh, was continuing to reach more people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, as more and more people were being reached, God seemed more and more out of reach to her. And over a period of time of her sort of being faithful to where she was at, it went from hundreds and hundreds of people to thousands and thousands and thousands of people being served by her and the organization that she was a part of. Her small acts of love and compassion were having a big impact. And when the eyes of the world began to notice what she was doing, and everyone began to look at her and what was going on, she was having her own crisis of faith. And in fact, she wrote these words, Where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain. I have no faith. Now Agnes's friends knew of this internal struggle of doubt and faith within her. Her friends obviously called her Agnes. We've come to call her Mother Teresa. This woman that we would look to as such an example of such great faith lived with great doubt. And we would never dare to compare ourselves to her when it comes to our faith, but she would tell you if she were here today, I wrestled and I struggled for the better half of the last part of my life with really truly believing and having faith. Where is my faith? Have you ever felt that way before? The Old Testament tells many, many stories, but one of the central characters is really a hero of the Old Testament. His name is David. Central character in the Old Testament. 
uh, Israel's best king. He was this warrior, poet, king. The Bible calls him actually as a man after God's own heart. This is sort of an ideal uh, sort of person of faith in the Old Testament. This is what he writes in the book of Psalms. He says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Now listen to how he has to will himself back to faith. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You ever felt that way before? God, where are you? I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm going to have to like put one foot in front of the other, because this is not coming naturally to me. Jesus himself full member of the Trinity, on the darkest day in human history, as he took on the weight of sin, the the totality of our depravity upon himself, the Son of God calls out to God and says, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? When the weight of the sin of the world is upon Jesus' shoulders, God cannot even look at him because he is so despised. And Jesus from the cross says, God, why? Where are you? Have you ever felt that way before? This reality of doubt we see in Mother Teresa. We see doubt in the life of David. And we see Jesus himself questioning God himself. And if these characters can live in the tension of faith and doubt, then maybe, just maybe, there's something about doubt that we don't know or haven't fully embraced or understood. Could it be that faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive things? That maybe the presence of doubt is actually an invitation for growth. And that's the hope of where we are going to go together this morning. For the next couple of weeks, we're kicking off a series today called The Upside of Down, where we look at the gift of God in the hardest things in our life. And today, specifically, we're looking at the upside of doubt. And I want to be really clear at the top of the message. I want to be very, very, very clear about this. My goal over the course of our time together here this morning is not to prove your doubts wrong. My goal is not to sort of eliminate your doubt and answer all your questions. I couldn't possibly do that. I wouldn't even try. My hope and my goal, my prayer for you has been over the last couple weeks that you would recognize that you are in great company when you are in doubt. And I want to help you see through the teaching of the Bible what you can do with that doubt. And more specifically, where you can go. Who you can go to. Because all of us, no matter where we're at, sort of on the faith spectrum, no matter what your story is, every single one of us has dealt with doubt at some level. All of us have dealt with or are dealing with some level of doubt. Let me show you just what I mean. I want you to think back to how old you were when you first figured out the Santa Claus thing. I don't know if we have any kids in the room. I'm trying to keep this as vague as possible. So... When you first got some clues about Santa, how old were you? I want you to turn to the person next to you and try and remember back. Just take a guesstimate of how old you were when you first started to have some questions. 
All right. I really hope I didn't burst anyone's bubble. Spoiler alerts. Okay. I, I was about seven or eight. I'd say probably, probably about seven or eight when I began to have my doubts about Santa. But friends, I let it ride as long as possible. <laughs> I'm like, if you guys are going to keep playing along, I'm going to keep playing along. Let's see how long we can do this thing. See, the, the, the reality is, even at an early age, we're introduced to the concept of doubt. Like, wait a second, I'm not sure that I understand all of this, or I'm not sure if I fully believe this, or I'm not sure if I can fully trust this. And that's actually an ordinary thing. I'm not sure sort of what the faith background is for your story, or what kind of, or what amount of faith you grew up with, if any at all. But my hunch is no matter what the amount of faith you had as a kid, it was what you needed when you were a kid. It worked, actually. Whatever your sort of faith was in God as a child, whatever you were exposed to, it was enough for you at that time. And it, and it worked. It worked for you. It was important, actually, for you, whether you had a little or a lot. The reality is no matter how much you had then, very rarely can that amount carry you into adulthood. Whatever amount you had as a kid, very rarely can that carry you into adulthood. In fact, the Bible talks about this. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about this idea that when we're kids, yeah, we act like kids, we think like kids, because we are kids. But there comes a time that we have to grow up. That's like what Nicole and Kurt were talking about. So we're going to look at for the next three months as a church. How do we grow up? And how do we grow our faith up? Because if you continue to hold on to whatever amount of faith you had as a kid or was handed to you by well-intentioned parents, and you think that that is enough to carry you through adulthood, you are going to be sorely surprised and mistaken. And in fact, many of you maybe have experienced that already yourselves. Maybe for you it happened in college, first time you went away. Maybe you're here now in Chicago, away from home, and it's the first time in your life that you can actually kind of make some of your own choices, and you don't have to go to church, and no one's going to know. Or maybe you had a philosophy class, and someone said a bunch of things, and you said, wait a second. And for the first time in your life, you began to doubt. What you had as a kid wasn't enough for you as an adult. Or maybe for you, it's, it's around this idea of you've been praying and praying and praying for something, and after a while, after months and months or even years maybe of praying for something, and you haven't seen God move like you wanted him to, you begin to ask yourself, does God really hear my prayers? And then at a deeper level, does he even care? Maybe for you, you look at sort of the reality of difficult and terrible and painful things in the world, and you wonder, is God really in control? How could a God in control allow these things to happen? Or maybe you sat at too many, one too many weddings, and you wonder, God, are you ever going to bring someone for me? And I'm doubting, God. I'm doubting if you're even good or if you have a plan for my life. Maybe you've asked yourself some of those questions before. Doubt enters in to every one of our stories. What you do with it is what matters. Because we all know people who we've met or or are in a relationship with, maybe you are one, who is a used-to kind of person. They're a used-to kind of person. They used to go to church as a kid, but they don't really go anymore. Or they used to go to church a couple years ago, but after the divorce, they haven't been back. They used to believe in God. They used to pray. They used to have faith. But as life has grown more complex and intense Doubts become more present, and a couple years later, they no longer are. They used to, but they no longer are what you would call a person of faith. Maybe that's your story. Maybe that's, in fact, why you're even here 
this morning. Doubt is a very, very important and very powerful thing. Because within doubt in and of itself, doubt has the power to either blow up your faith or grow up your faith. Doubt has the power to either blow up your faith, and maybe that's happened to you, or I bet you know someone who that's happened to. The questions just got too big, big enough they thought that their questions were bigger than God, and it just blew up their faith. They're a used-to person. They used to have faith. They used to pray. Doubt has the power to do that. It absolutely has the power to do that. But it also has the power to grow up your faith. And so that's why it's so important that we're talking about what we talked about here this morning. What you do with your doubt matters. What you do with it matters. Where you take your doubt or where it takes you matters. And most specifically, what we're going to look at here is who you take your doubt to absolutely matters. So we're going to look at a person who took their doubt to God, who took their doubts to God and see the invitation from God to them to come in all in, even with their doubts. So if you would, grab a Bible, please. If you brought your own, fantastic. Uh, you get bonus points. If you didn't, there's blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Would everyone grab a Bible and open up to John chapter 20? John chapter 20. In the blue Bible, it's page 757. So I'm going to give you a little heads up so you can get there. John chapter 20, page 757. Grab a pen. We're going to be circling a few things in this passage. As we say all the time, if you are an adult and you're trying to figure out what it means to have an adult faith, a grown-up faith, a growing-up faith, and you do not own a Bible, we can help with that. We think this is incredibly important for you. So if you do not own a Bible and want one, would you please steal the Bible that is in your hands? Steal a Bible from church today. All right, it's very important that you do that because this is a, a critical, critical thing in you having a greater understanding of who God is and how to have a transforming relationship with him. Let me give you context to John chapter 20 so we understand. We don't just come to a passage of scripture in and of itself as an isolated thing. There's a bigger story that's happening. And so the bigger story here is in John chapter 20, Jesus has already gone to the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's already given his life for us died a very real death on a cross for our very real sin, but then was raised by God from the dead. This is what we celebrate every Easter. This is the crux of the Christian message. Raised by God from the dead, thus defeating death once and for all and making a way for us to have relationship with God. All that's happened. And he's appeared to a couple of his followers, just a few. He's appeared to them in his resurrected form. It started with the women because he knew he could trust them to get the message out. And so he started with the women and then some of the disciples... Some of the disciples started to see, but not all had seen. Not all had seen. That's very important to understand. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the original disciples that Jesus chose. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus. Now let me just hit pause real quick here. It's very, I just, what I love about the Bible is the way that it gives us insight into not only who God is, but specifically who Jesus was as he walked among us. Jesus had this habit, this way of renaming people, giving them nicknames. And so uh, among his disciples, he had the sons of thunder. Peter he called the rock. John he called the beloved. And apparently Thomas was known as Didymus, which means literally in, in, in Aramaic, in the language that Jesus spoke. And then the closest translation in Greek is the twin. And so the most leading scholars tend to believe that Thomas had a twin. Wow, the nine o'clock got that, but not you guys. So he had a twin. That's why they called him the twin. Maybe not one of Jesus' best nicknames, but it was accurate. He called him the twin. So 
a lot of the disciples would just call him Didymus. They would call him by his nickname. Later in his career, he would change his name from Didymus to P. Didymus. Um, <laughs> and then later just drop that all together. So that, that's, oh, this is fun. And so that's who this is. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the 12, very important, one of the original disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That means when he appeared in his resurrected form. So, listen to this. The other disciples told him, well-intentioned, well-meaning, they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas has picked up a nickname of our own. Jesus gave him one, the twin. We've come to call Thomas what? Doubting Thomas. This is that Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And what's funny about that is that whole idea of doubting Thomas, that phrase that's popular among our culture, actually comes from this passage, but there's no previous history in Thomas's life of him doubting or expressing his doubt. In fact, we only have a few interactions between him and Jesus recorded in the Gospels, and they are actually beautiful interactions where Thomas has an open spirit and actually asks Jesus questions. Many of the disciples assumed things or sort of just accused Jesus of things or just made declarations about Jesus, but Thomas asks and tries to understand. We've come to call him Doubting Thomas. It's not like all along the way he was doubting Jesus every step of the way. It's not like when Jesus turned water into wine, he's like... I'm going to need to taste that. You know, it's not, he in this moment says, I get that you saw him. I have not. I'm going to need something more than that. And just a quick word to those who might consider themselves overzealous Christians. Your zeal can be incredibly infectious. And at times it can be incredibly toxic. Just because you're there doesn't mean everyone else is going to get there as quickly or the same way that you got there. It all ultimately comes back to and through Jesus. But these disciples are saying, we've seen him, we've seen him, we've seen him. Just get on board, Thomas. That's all you need to hear. And he says, no, wait, no. I need more than that. It's not because he lacks faith. Listen, Thomas put all of his faith in Jesus and left his life and spent the last three or so years following this rabbi, this Messiah around, gave his life. He already put his faith in Jesus and he watched his faith die the day that Jesus was crucified. So I'm going to need a little bit more than you just telling me to get on board. I'm going to need a little bit more than that. And so, this is what we see. So beautiful, so powerful. John 20, verse 26. A week later, a week later. Now, the disciples, just so you know, were huddled up in a home for fear of their lives. So yes, people of great faith. They were still hiding out, afraid that people would come and find them and want to kill them like they'd killed Jesus. So a week later, the disciples were in the house again. That's what that's referring to. And Thomas was with them. Now, look at this little detail. Though the doors were what? Locked. Now, this is very interesting, because in a minute, we're going to see Jesus do something very, very cool. But the implication here is that they were truly holed up, waiting, hiding. They may have had, especially those who saw Jesus, a faith brewing in them, but it had not moved to such a point that they unlocked the doors and walked out of the room. So here they are in the room, and Jesus, with locked doors, came and stood among them. It's like way better than David Blaine. Just comes right through the wall 
and stands among them in his resurrected body and says, very importantly, peace be with you, because you're probably freaked out. So peace be with you. It's me. Peace be with you. Now listen to this. Jesus was not in the room when Thomas had said what he said a week ago to the disciples. Listen to what Jesus says and who he says it to. Then he said specifically to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out. I want you to circle that phrase, reach out. Very important. Reach out. Put your finger here. Remember, you said you wanted proof. Okay, come here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. It's pretty graphic, but Jesus is saying, if that's what you need, I'm here and I can handle it. Reach out. And he says very lovingly, he leads him, and stop doubting and believe. In other words, Thomas, you know me. You may not understand all of the details of the events that are surrounding us, but you know me. So stop doubting me and believe. That invitation from Jesus is so personal and it's so intimate. He says to Thomas, reach out. Thomas, in your doubt, reach out. Yes, you have doubts. I understand reach out, reach out. The invitation is to come in to the presence of Jesus. And at that moment, John 20, 28, Thomas sees and recognizes and understands and declares, my Lord and my God. And what he's saying here is a word that would have got him stoned outside of this room, would have gotten him killed because it would have been blasphemy according to the religious leaders of his day. He says, my master, my rabbi, my teacher, you are Jehovah. You are the Lord. You are the God. You are him. You see what happens when he reaches out in the midst of his doubt into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus gives a little sermon for him and a little sermon for us in John 29. Then Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you've believed. You, this is what you needed. You saw me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. That's you and me. Blessed are those who put their faith, even with their doubts, and still choose to trust me, to believe me even though they haven't seen me, Thomas, like you have. Now, Jesus could have very easily, could have very easily scolded Thomas for his lack of faith. Could have made a real point of him. Just scolded him and shamed him like, what? Did you see everything I just did and you still don't believe? Could have made a moment there just to kind of shame him, but he doesn't. He lovingly leads him. Jesus could have actually taken a moment and said, okay, let me explain it. He could have tried to explain it all to Thomas and said, okay, Thomas, let me break this down for you. He could have walked through all the Old Testament prophecies and let's say, now see, that's actually me. And he could have walked him through all that stuff, explained the cross, explained the resurrection to him, but he didn't. Instead, he invites him to reach out and to step in. The invitation from Jesus is not simply about rational truth, but relational trust. Rational truth has its place. And unfortunately, the, tend among, the trend among evangelicals is to swing the pendulum to rational truth. We have to prove this thing exists. We have to find and break it all down. And that is very important. It absolutely has its place. Jesus could have done that. But what instead he does is says, no, I'm going to invite you into relational trust. You know me. Reach out. Get in here. And recognize me as your God, the God. Come to me, be with me, even in the midst of your doubts and your questions and your fear. If God is, is, if God is so big 
that we can't possibly ever understand him with our limited minds. If God is so big that we'll never get our biggest questions answered, if God is so big that we can't possibly put him in a box, then he has to be big enough to handle my biggest questions and doubts. If he's so big that I can't understand him, then he has to be big enough that he can handle my doubts and questions about him. See, doubt... In its essence, doubt, what we see here in Thomas, doubt, what I hope that you will discover and, and experience in your life, doubt is really nothing more than a faith that's ready to grow up. You need to reframe this thing. For so long, we thought we have to get rid of doubt. I have to get rid of doubt. If I have doubts, I'm messed up. No one else has doubts. I have doubts. What if doubt is actually a faith that's ready to grow up? And that childlike faith or that old faith or that small faith or that limited faith cannot contain where God is taking you. And so your questions of, wait a second, wait a second, why? Wait, I don't, how does that work? I'm not sure. God, help me understand. That doubt actually could be a faith that is ready to grow up. Doubt is proof that faith is a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing. Doubt is proof that faith is not a noun, something that we get, but it's a verb. It's something that we exercise, and it grows, and it's challenged, and it grows, and it's challenged. Doubt helps us see that it's dynamic, that it grows, our faith grows, as we grow. So as we kind of grow up, like 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, our faith should be, your faith should be growing up with you. And the interesting corollary is, as your faith grows up, it causes you to grow up even more. You see the dynamic at play here. That's how doubt becomes actually a gift to us, because it can alert us of a faith that's ready to grow up. Doesn't have it all figured out, doesn't have it all wrapped up in a pretty little bow, but it says it's time to grow up in this area. Doubt is a sign of a faith that's ready to grow up. And I know this all too well. See, the truth about me is I have my own doubts. I have my own doubts. Now, I've, I grew up in a home where we talked about God, and I went to a church that talked about God, and so I was kind of around people talking about God for a long time. And my doubts have never really centered around the existence of God. My doubts have been about the goodness of God. Just me now. I've, I've not really wrestled with, and, and maybe you, you do, and they're legitimately your doubts, the existence of God. I've never found myself personally asking, is there a God? But I've found myself plenty of times saying, is he good? Is he really good? Is he really actually Good. Does he really care? See, this wasn't a problem for me as a kid because the faith I had was what I needed at that time. That's what I needed at that time. And so it's easy for me to say and to pray, God is great, God is good, let's give him thanks for this food. I never liked that prayer, by the way. <laughs> Terrible slant rhyme. I did not like that. But it was easy for me to say, easy for me to say, yeah, God is great, yep, yeah, God is good, yep, yeah, it worked for me at that time. And that's a beautiful thing. But as I became an adult, that simple childlike faith just wasn't cutting it anymore. I'd been to enough funerals. I'd had enough heartbreak. And my question was, God, are you really good? I get that you're there, but it's almost worse to know that you're there and not good. 
In fact, I wrote down in a journal years ago, I think I'd rather believe that you didn't exist than to know that you exist and that you are not good. Because I don't know what to do with that, God. And so I entered into a pretty deep season of doubt. And it really all came to a head uh, nine years ago this last week. We've talked about this before, and so I won't go into detail. But nine years ago this last week, uh, Jeannie's father suddenly passed away quite suddenly, completely unexpected. And not only was he the hero of her life, but he was a hero of mine. This is a man that I deeply loved and respected. I have a fantastic relationship with my dad, and then I got the bonus of this relationship with Bill. And I, 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 when he died, all of these little doubts that I'd been stuffing down and I'd been kind of tucking away when I came up to give sermons and all these questions that I had about the goodness of God just poured out onto the table. And it all got spilled out. And I said, okay, God, now, like, the gloves are off. Really, how, how does this happen? How is this? And I began to notice over that time that my doubts were growing faster than my faith. And I had enough sort of wherewithal to say, I, some, I, okay, I gotta, something has to be done here. I've got to do something here. I've got to figure out how to sort of not let this doubt blow up my faith. And I didn't have the language for it at the time, but what I desperately wanted was for it to grow up my faith because my faith was ready to grow up past the simple childlike faith that just thought that if God was good, he never let bad things happen in the world. My faith was ready to grow. And so doubts were present. I could either let my doubts take me wherever they wanted to take me, or I could take them to the only place that I knew, back to God, to reach out like Thomas with my doubt and say, okay, God, I don't know what to do with this about you. I don't even know if this is you, so I'm going to bring it to you. And what I did at that time, I thank God for, was I surrounded myself with a couple people, a small group of people that could sit with me in my doubt, that could sit with me in the messiness that could sit with me without all my answers, answers to all my questions, and be okay and reflect back to me the heart and the love and the truth of God, and also just sort of let me be a little undone. And over about a year and a half period, what I began to see was that there are just some things in this life that I'm not ever going to get answers to, but I can have some peace about. And I just had to go, I don't get this, I don't like it, I would not have done it but I am going to come to peace with the fact that it's okay I don't understand. I don't even know if I've come to peace with the fact that it happened, but I can come to peace with the fact that I don't have to understand it all. I can come to peace with the fact that, God, you are mysterious and bigger than I could ever imagine and bigger than even my biggest question and big enough to handle my biggest doubts and fears. I had to embrace and come to peace with the mystery and bigness of God. To understand that doubt is not something to run from. But what God was inviting me into is doubt was a thing to grow through. Because my faith was ready to grow up. It was time. And so that's exactly what he began to do. And I'd love to tell you, like, and that's exactly how I solved the problem of doubt. (laughs) Not at all. I still wonder, every time I grab the wheel from God, every time I put my comfort as the highest thing, highest value of my life, every time I see something that I want and I justify using our money to get it or whatever it is, or every time I, whatever it is, I'm saying, God, I don't, 
I don't know that I fully trust that you're good and will take care of me. So I'm going to have to take care of this myself. Doubt is still ever present in my life. But so is faith. And the two are not mutually exclusive. And one actually compels the other. God, I, I want to bring these doubts and these questions to you. And I don't know if I'll ever get answers, but I know that I can have you. I can have you. And I may not know everything I want to know, but I can actually know you and have a relationship with you. And so that's what I'm going to choose to do. So my question to you this morning is, what are the doubts that you're carrying around with you? What are the places where your, your faith, as small as you may think it is, is ready to grow? It's time to grow. It can't be contained by or held into that old way, that childlike way any longer. It's time to grow up. And growing up does not mean eliminating your doubts, but leveraging your doubt to draw you even closer into the presence of God. And say, okay, God, I'm going to come with my questions. I'm going to come with my doubts. I'm going to come with my fears, whatever they may be. It may be around the loss or death of someone. I don't understand this, God. And so I'm going to sit with you in this, either till you give me an answer, which you may not, or until you give me peace to move forward, until you grow my faith. God, I may not understand sort of this aspect of the world and how this works and your timing on things. God, I don't understand your timing. I would not have done it that way. I told you which way I would have done it, but you didn't do it that way. And I don't understand that. But instead of running away, I'm actually going to try and grow through this and sit in the tension of doubt and faith because you are a big and complex God. And could it be that I'm actually made in your likeness? Could it be that I am in my doubts, my deepest doubts, in good company with many other people of great faith and small faith throughout all of human history. Where do you go with your doubts? And would you, could you this week, actually bring them into the presence of God to reach out like Thomas and say, okay, I'm going to come in. I'll accept the invitation. Again, Jesus didn't explain it all to him. He just said, you know me. Be with me. And so the homework for this week ties in beautifully with where our church is going to over the next couple months. The homework for you would be to figure out how you can put yourself into a circle of people, a community of people, where you can bring your questions, your doubts, your fears, where you don't have to try and hide or repackage them or just try and get answers to them, but you can kind of lay them on the table and say, okay, what do we do about this? And God, will you be in the middle of even this? I, can't, I just can't think of sort of a better context to work out our faith and our doubt than a loving, biblical community, a circle of people. So my encouragement to you would be to sign up today. It's going to sound like a commercial. Again, it is, because this stuff actually works. To get into a circle of people, it's what I desperately needed. And my hunch is it's what you need too, where you can be real, open and authentic, and see God actually growing you up, even maybe in the face of some of your doubts. You know, we even have a group called Starting Point. A group where you, it's, a, like, it's all about asking your big questions and living in this kind of tension and trusting that God is going to guide and lead us through them. That God is going to grow us up instead of allow this to blow up our faith. And so maybe Starting Point. If you've got kind of big questions or you don't understand how the whole Christian faith thing works, what a great group for you to be in to ask those questions in a safe context. So that's kind of the homework for this week is for you to figure out how you can get into a circle where you can bring 
these kind of questions. You know, Agnes realized that she had to do the same thing. Years later in her life, well, well into the latter part of her life, she realized that she had to surround herself with a circle of loving people who could love her even with her doubts, especially because of her doubts. And there was a spiritual counselor that was a part of her circle, her little community, who spoke such beautiful and powerful truth into her life that she wrote about later in her life. And one of the many things that he gave to her, I think I'd love to close our time with this morning, is this. He said to her, Agnes, Mother Teresa, that you know, just having the feeling of the presence of God, having sort of that feeling of the presence of God, just wanting to feel like God's here so that'll make my doubts go away, having the feeling of the presence of Jesus was not the only or even the primary evidence of his presence. That just you feeling God or feeling better about it is not the only proof of his existence. But he said, your very craving for God is a sure sign that he is present. So just feeling like it's, everything's working, no doubts, we're all good, that's not maybe the best place to build your faith on. But your craving and desire and your willingness to reach out even in your doubt and to bring it to Jesus is all the proof you need that he actually is present. That craving is a great indicator of how much faith you actually have and how much God wants to grow it up. And so for the next few moments, we're going to spend some time reflecting on that, responding specifically to that. We're going to celebrate communion together. I couldn't think of a better week for us to celebrate the reality of Jesus and what he did for us. Jesus, the Bible tells us, gathered his disciples together the night that he would be betrayed and arrested. Thomas is there at the table. And Jesus gathers them together and he says, a lot's going to happen. Your faith is going to be tested. You thought it was hard up to this point. Everything's going to change. And I don't want you to forget me. He didn't give him a sermon with bullet points. He said, I don't want you to forget me. And so he took bread and he broke it. And he said, let this remind you of my body, the same body that Thomas would need to touch to know. He said, let this be a reminder to you. This bread is a reminder of my body broken for you, my life offered for you. And then he poured out wine. He said, let this wine be a reminder to you of my blood, the only perfect and pure blood to ever flow through human veins, the only thing that can cover the weight of my sin, pay the price of my sin, the only thing to offer the forgiveness that I need is this. And I don't want you to forget it. So he poured it out. And he said, you do this often. Every time you see these elements at the table, remember me. Reach out for me. No matter what the circumstances of life are that brought you to the table, you can reach out to me, even in your fears and doubts, and I will be with you, and I will grow you up. And so we're going to celebrate communion right now, and I want to invite you in a moment when I'm done praying to come to the table as you are, with your questions, with your fears, with your doubts, with your recognition of God's movement in your life, with your struggle to find it all of it. Bring it to the table and be reminded of the presence of Jesus, which is here with you and for you.
today. When you come to the front, you just take a piece of bread and you dip it in the cup. And it's a reminder of his body and his blood made fully available for all of who you are. Faith and doubt. All of who you are. So let me pray for us right now and we'll spend that time together. Jesus, thank you that you are not only our way to salvation, you are not only the way to relationship with God, but you modeled a way for us. Jesus, you yourself on the cross, the darkest hour in human history, were honest. You wondered. You called out. You cried out, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And so today, we say as best we can, God, we believe that you're here, not only with us, but for us. Jesus, thank you that you made the way for us to come to the Father. It's your body and your blood. The proof that Thomas needed is all that we need this morning to remind us of your presence. That you may not give us all the answers we want, but you can give us the peace that we need in this world. And so humbly and honestly and authentically, we come. We reach out this morning for you. In your name we pray. Amen.